we get to join together tonight as the body of Christ, so encouraged to be with you again. And for those of you who don't know me, my name is Jared Corzine. I've uh, been a pastor here at Matthias Law for a number of years. I've been on staff as the pastor of discipleship for quite a while now. And uh, my role in the body is to serve in such a way that it enables us to make disciples, but grow as disciples of Jesus Christ. Everything I think about in the church, everything that I wrestle with goes through this filter of what does this mean for the way that we follow Christ. Everything has to do with Jesus, amen? Amen. Um, tonight is, uh, is a unique sermon subject matter that I have not yet had the privilege of getting into. We're going to wrestle with uh, marriage, sex, singleness. Marriage, sex, and singleness. Um, and I first want to look at this word. Hope. Some of you, when you uh, hear those three terms, marriage, sex, singleness, and hope, uh, we would probably, if I did a poll, an honest poll of the whole audience, I wonder what we would say, how we would say that fleshes out. This is a great night to be here because I've been hoping to have sex for a long time. Yes, yes, this is finally the night we're going to get to this. Or, yes, I've been, um, I, I know there are so many, we are blessed to have so many single folks on our body, any number of which may be wrestling with this longing. I've, I've been hoping to be married for a long time. Uh, in kind of a comical yet tragic way, I'm sure there's some of us who are married that if, if we were honest with ourselves in this moment, we would say, you know, I'm, I'm actually something in me that's in a sinful way actually longs for singleness again. Um, if we really thought about this, this, this word hope, it, it is so relevant to where we're at. And I love the some of the words that we were just singing, the, the ways that we were confessing that Jesus is our hope, because at the end of the day, we can just begin on this statement right here. If our hope in this life is grounded and limited to our performance in our roles as husbands, as wives, as brothers and sisters in Christ, if, if our hope is found in us, then we have no hope whatsoever. Tonight, if we have hope in Jesus... If all of our hope is in Christ, then we have ultimate hope. Um, the word hope, it implies that there's something that you, something that you long to, to find, something that you long to um, experience, something that you long to, t- to take hold of and, and to, to see a, maybe a desired outcome. But it's way down the way. You're hoping to get there someday. Uh, often, if you're hoping for something high enough that the process getting there from today till that day involves a very difficult journey. Uh, any of you guys who maybe were in sports, you probably have fall conditioning or the first couple of weeks of, of practice are harder than usual because, because you have to break down some barriers. Um, so many of us have had teachers, coaches, bosses, in so many ways, shape, or form say basically this statement to us, um, do you trust me? Do you trust me? I was, at a, I was having lunch with a friend last week, and how many of you have ever been to Who Hot? Does anybody, this is my first, yeah, there you go. All you got to do is just say the name, and it sounds like you're excited about Who Hot, that's right. Um, Who Hot is a all-you-can-eat Mongolian barbecue place. Now, it was pretty amazing. Uh, as we're going through, my friend is giving me the steps. Here's what you need to do. You need to put this in here. You need to get this there. You bring your stuff up to a big hibachi grill, and all the cooks just throw it on there and make it. Well, we get to the end of, of the line where you gather the ingredients, and you, you get to this epic table where there's like 10 different sauces. 
and there's like detailed descriptions for every sauce. And he, he saw me standing there staring, trying to read and make my way through. This is a big commitment. And, uh, and, and after about 45 seconds, he just stepped over and he just said, do you trust me? I said, yeah, yeah, thank you, thank you. So I just gave him my bowl and he just like started going to town. Like you need a little bit of this, you need a little bit of that. Uh, it, it'll be okay. It was absolutely delicious. Not too hot. I trusted him. He was faithful with my trust. Um, I decided to do a little search uh, on the uh, internet to um, find some pictures that, that put this phrase, do you trust me, in visual form. Uh, here's some of them that I got. Number one, uh, any of you guys who've seen Band of Brothers, this is, this is the company running up uh, Mount Kurahi. Uh, and they would say three miles up, three miles down. And uh, obviously, very, very famous um, infantry patrol, uh, had a, won a lot of battles, made it to Hitler's Eagle's Nest at the end of World War II. Many of them credit the conditioning that their jerk first uh, CO led them through, uh, where basically they had to trust, is this, do I believe that this process can go somewhere? Do you trust me? Next uh, would be this. Um, for those of you who don't know, maybe can't see through the shadow, this is one of the most epic training scenes in all of film history. This is Rocky IV right here, okay? Rocky IV. Now, uh, you know, he, he, funny enough, I did a sermon illustration where I was talking about carrying your cross, and I just realized that Rocky is actually uh, uh, doing that. Um, but you have this scene that happens in all the Rocky movies, a lot of these fight movies where, where you, you know that the date of the fight is set, and, uh, you know, the champ's got to get back in the gym. And so then you got all these, all these scenes, epic scenes, where, where uh, Mick and all the other trainers are yelling at Rocky, you know, come on, come on, come on. You got this do you trust me to go through this hardship kind of thing to get to the end in this? Of course, I had to watch like the 10 minute long monologue that had all of the Rocky training scenes just to put this in perspective. It was nice. Um, next up, how many of you have done this? Trust fall. Anybody in the room? I'm just really curious. Has anybody ever been dropped when, yeah, you always get some of these. Yeah. And the hands never just slightly go up. They just shoot up like, yes, I'm still carrying around wounds, the ways that my trust was broken and my tailbone. And, uh, but absolutely crazy. You have adults or big, bigger people than the littler people that are there catching them. It just, it, it never makes sense. Um, do you trust me? Next up, this is classic. Uh, literally from the movie, verbatim. Do you trust me? I trust you. Um, you can all remember being there. When you saw the movie for the first time, uh, while we're on the, the, the topic of movies, uh, I remember seeing this movie and seeing a, a, a next movie, uh, terrible actors in this next picture, uh, but um, <laughs> do you trust me? Like Edward like, goes up his like, chipmunk tree thing, like climbs up the tree, and then she just holds on, and then he just takes off in this completely meaningless scene of, of showing off his ability and, you know, do you trust me? Of course, they end up in the grass later whispering into their ears and all that stuff. Do you do you trust me? Uh, next up, this, this, this is huge. This is huge. Now, for those of you, I think my, my mom is here tonight, and I think for a certain generation, everybody's mom was in love with Patrick Swayze. And for the lucky few, that, that, that passion's been passed down. You know what's about ready to happen. This is the end of the movie, right, where, where, where they just bust out into that Amen, that's right. We just bust out into this, uh, this final amazing dance scene. And then afterwards, he turns around and he looks at her. And then he goes like this. And then she's like, 
and then she just takes off, and let's, let's just see it. Let's see it. There we go. Yes. Do you, uh, do you trust me? What about this one? What about this one? Do you trust me? This isn't a movie. Uh, I should clarify that. I don't even know who these people are. But they're on a pretty beach. It's awesome. They made their way down to wherever they are. Uh, and, and there's a big wrestling in this. Do you trust me? You think about people getting married and entering into this, this, amazing, uh, this amazing covenant of marriage. Wrestling with this question, do you trust me? Or maybe even self-doubting up at the altar. Do I really trust them? Um, think about it from this perspective. What if the question, do you trust me, wasn't, wasn't being asked between spouses, but, but what if it was being asked by God to those who are entering into the covenant? So not so much, do you trust me, directed at the spouse, but the Lord himself asking this couple, do you trust me? Do you trust me in this? Um, last slide. Uh, the unnamed character on the left, the guy who, if you could see his face close enough, I actually lucked out that he looks really angry and mad that he, this is the fifth wedding this year he's been at. Always the bridesmaid, never the bride. I had a friend who was a priest. I used to always tease him about that. Uh, you know, he's, that most of my jokes take way longer to catch up. It's okay. It's not, it's not personal. I get it. I get it. Um, but what about this guy? What about this guy at the wedding? Single man, yet again, seeing a friend uh, get married. What does it look like for him to wrestle with this question? What does it look like for God to ask this man, do you trust me? You in your singleness. This question of trust is so universal. Um, so, many, uh, so many things that we wrestle with in this church, we get to wrestle with things like marriage, like singleness, in the midst of it, I think we're all, asking, we're, we're all being asked this question of the Lord. Do you trust me where you're at? Do you trust me with what I've given you? Do you trust me with what I've withheld from you? Trust is a big thing, but I'll say this. Because God is trustworthy, we can hope for the future, living, trusting with what he gives us today to believe that it will be enough. Believing that he has purposes for why we have or why we don't have certain things in life especially related to marriage or singleness. Pray with me. God, I, I, pray, that you would, um, I pray that you would make your uh, word once again come alive. Uh, nothing I say on my own is, um, has any power. Um, God, I, I, am, uh, I confess once again, I am a weak, a weak disciple. Uh, I have failed in so many ways. Um, my friends have failed in so many ways. Even the best of us struggle to reconcile. Have we been faithful to just ourselves or, or has this all really been for you or not? I pray tonight that you would remove conviction, condemnation, that, that you would give anything that simply just draws us back to yourself through celebration, through repentance, through whatever it means, Father. I pray that you would be with us. Thank you for the gifts that you give. You're the good giver in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so 1 Corinthians 7. We begin the next chapter. We've been in 1 Corinthians for quite a while now. This is hitting the halfway mark of the book. Amazing things have been said. Uh, Pastor Mark did a phenomenal job, amazing job, as he always does last week, teaching on a doctrine of the body and getting to a fundamental statement that what we do in this life matters. What we do in this life matters. 
Uh, now, what Jesus did in his life and death and resurrection matters more, amen. But what we do, God gives us the things that he gives us for a purpose, for stewardship, so that we can take care of these things and see his purposes fulfilled in our lives. So we're going to begin at verse 1 in 1 Corinthians 7. Now concerning the matters about which he wrote, it is not good for a man. I'm sorry, it is good. That's a very important not to leave out there. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. So we've got to remember where we're at. We're in Corinth. Uh, Corinth is a place way farther away from Jerusalem, way away from Galilee, way away from Nazareth, way away from, from uh, you know, Corinth isn't a, isn't a big place that, that has any prominence in the gospel stories because most of what Jesus did wasn't in this physical place in Corinth. Uh, there's been a church planted there. Paul's been uh, pastoring uh, in so many ways from a distance. He's been encouraging them. And a lot of what they're up against as a, as a church plant, as a church that has no physical history in the gospel until this recent thing has happened, a lot of things they're up against are very sexual in nature. The culture in Corinth is very sexualized. There are things like prostitutes roaming the streets at night. You know, Adultery is common. Licentiousness is all over the place. This church is up against pressure, big time, and temptation. So what it looks like happened is they wrote him, the church writes him, and they're wanting clarification on some things. One of the things that Paul summarizes here in verse 1, he says, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. He's saying, let me, let me examine this with you. Now, literally, uh, the phrase sexual relations is one word that basically means like a one-way touch. So he's saying, you know, let me sum this up. Uh, it is good, your statement, for a man not to uh, forcibly, in a one-way direction, uh, touch a woman inappropriately or sexually. So let's wrestle with that, he says. It says in verse 2, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. He doesn't say that all men should have wives or all women should have husbands, but each man who's married should have, double meaning there, should possess in some ways, but also should have physically his own wife. He should limit what he has to what God has given him in his marriage, and likewise for the woman. That each man uh, should, uh, fulfill his, should be fulfilled sexually, and likewise his wife within the bounds of this covenant gift that God has given in marriage. Um, there's a few statements I'm going to make tonight about... Uh, marriage and sex and things like that. The first one would be this. There we go. Sex is a good gift from God to be enjoyed faithfully. Sex is a good gift from God to be enjoyed faithfully. What Corinth is tempted to do is to say, well, there's, there's a lot of nastiness out there, so why don't we just get rid of sex altogether? Why don't we just get rid of anything related to this? Why don't we just swing the pendulum the other way? There were a lot of cults Historically, in this common era of time where a lot of people would abstain, a lot of teachers would say that, no, in order to be holy and pure, you need to not only abstain from sex outside of marriage, but married couples shouldn't even have sex either. The Dead Sea Scrolls community did this kind of thing, extreme in this way. But uh, Paul tells us, no, sex is a good gift uh, from God to be enjoyed faithfully within the covenant bounds of uh, marriage. How did you learn about sex? It would be funny in some ways probably awkward in some ways. Um, how did you learn about 
sex. I, I think about uh, when I was a kid, everybody's story starts off like, you know, when I was a kid and I, I remember I was on a sleepover and there was some movie, I don't even remember what the movie was, but, but there was a movie that was shown, of course, that, that was way above our pay grade, probably should have never watched it anyway, and I remember uh, seeing that there was sex involved, and I remember for about a month after that, I just held it in, I felt so guilty, like I had been exposed to something that was, like, that was wrong that I saw that. I remember about a month later, I, uh, I don't remember the whole nature of the conversation, I just remember sitting and, and basically just at some point just erupting in tears around my mom because I was just overflowing with guilt that, that something had happened. Uh, something had happened that I feel like I shouldn't have, you know, it was wrong that I, it was wrong that that was put on. It was wrong that that was played. Uh, how did you learn about sex? Movies have a lot to say about that. Um, the church that I was raised in, as much as I love it, I don't remember talking about sex a whole lot in the church. Let's be honest, it's not exactly... Um, it's not exactly like the first topic of conversation you want to talk about when you walk into church. Let's talk about sex, you know. Um, who sang that song? Whoever, yeah, there we go. Thank you. Um, so my friends in church weren't talking about sex. My teammates were talking about sex. In the locker room, we talked about sex. Um, cable TV talked about sex. Had plenty to say about sex. Uh, culture has... A whole lot to say about sex. The, the, and the truth is, is that um, most of us have learned in one way or another because of a lack of a focus on the long term, on, on the godly gift of what he's given, most of us have, have basically in one way or another inherited this, this message that sex is bad. And then you carry that into uh, later forms of life, uh, experience things maybe you shouldn't out of time or, or you carry that into marriage and it's hard to believe that this uh, to be experienced with your wife or your husband is actually a good gift. Um, how did you learn about sex? What's the point of sex? A lot of people outside the church have a beef with the fact that it seems like the Christian church has this big fixation with sex. You know, oh, if they just stop focusing on sex so much, what's the point about sex? I mean, very beginning in the story. In Genesis 1, one of the first things that God told the man to do, he said, be fruitful and multiply. In Genesis 2, after the woman is made, the Lord God, matter of fact, looks down on the man and says, he doesn't say, it is not good that the man has nobody to have sex with. That's not what he says, okay? No, what does he say? It is not good for man to be alone. And then what is the answer in that? He gives him a helper, he gives him a spouse. And then as a result of that naturally, then it says that, that, you know, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother. Two shall become one flesh, right? Uh, they were naked and unashamed. Awesome. That's great, you know. So the, the problem of loneliness, the problem of a, of a lack of intimacy, of being known by somebody else and knowing somebody else, that was a problem for the first man. And therefore, uh, that problem, praise God, was remedied before the fall. And then as a result of the helper being given to him, literally the two shall become one flesh, sex became a part of marriage. Um, you should know that, that the church has light years um, head start against the culture on this issue. If you ask somebody, just think about this, ask, ask somebody who's not a Christian, why would you ask a parent, what would you base the teaching for your children that they shouldn't have sex before marriage on? What would you base that on? There is an amazing book. If any of you guys are readers and uh, 
uh, would be interested. There's a book called Divine Sex. I promise you there's no pictures in it. It's not graphic in that way in any way. There's a book called Divine Sex by, by a guy named Jonathan Grant. just came out this year. It's, it's got to be one of the best ten books that have come out in the, in, in the evangelical printing world this year where he doesn't look at this mainly just from a biblical standpoint, but he's a pastor going from a philosophical standpoint of let's just look at culture and, and figure out what is, what is culture's worldview of sex. And then actually in the convicting sense, he takes that and then lays that over the church and says, how is the culture still influencing the church's view of sex and we still don't even know it? Uh, try flying home. I, was at a, I bought this book at a conference, trying, uh, flying home, reading this book, and then you get convicted as you look up and realize that the woman next to you is probably trying to peek over and she thinks that you're reading a sex book on the plane. It gets kind of awkward. Okay. But the reality is the church has grounding, biblical, good, sound, authoritative reasoning for the way we view sex the way we do. Because if, if you just said, well, don't have sex before marriage because um, you've got to wait till you're done with college, well, what that reveals is that your so-called God is education in that moment. That's what prioritizes everything. Or uh, don't have sex until uh, you're married because you need to wait to be financially stable, good and fine. What that can reveal is that money is your God. Don't have sex because money has to take its course. Uh, or social status or things like that. Uh, the church's ability to take God's word and serve the culture around it with authority is something that, man, the, the culture is just breaking it, trying to catch up. It has nothing in the wake of sexual sin. The only thing that the culture has to stand on is this little thing that says, as long as it's consensual. You tell me anything else in culture that can't break down at some point down to just that point. So at the end of the day, what, is the, what does the culture have to offer? What does the church really have to offer? And it's not just that this view that sex is bad. It's actually this view that sex is given to us from a good, giver, loving God himself. Paul continues on in verse 3. He says, The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, it's such an official term, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Now, if we pause right there, literally he's saying in the beginning, the husband should give or pay to his wife what is owed. It's this idea of a debt, that, that something that's an obligation that's expected. Um, and then he goes on to make this statement that would be super common in the ancient world where he says the, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. That's a universal truth most places even today in, in, in cultures that um, aren't in the West, that a woman has no authority over her body, but the husband does. Now, where Paul gets extremely radical is in this next statement. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Nobody believes that, except for what we get in Scripture. Now, what does this do to the marriage relationship? It takes this uh, a sinful view that one uh, possesses all control, uh, that one possesses all authority over another, and it's only a one-way street. When what the Christian hope provides is you take a husband and you take a wife who equally have authority over each other's bodies and all of a sudden what you get is equal partners in marriage. Now at Matthias we, we would take what's called a complementarian view of marriage which says that, that men and women have different roles in gender that men and women have different roles especially within the, within the, the arena of marriage but that doesn't mean that we're 
any more or less value over each other. So Paul is giving this amazing freedom. But when he says, likewise, uh, that, this, that this husband and, and, and the wife, that they don't have authority over their own body, but their spouse does, is this grounds for abuse? If I don't have authority over my own body, does that give the other grounds to just take what they want against my will? Do I have any say in the matter? I'll let you decide for yourself. First Corinthians 6. We just read some of these last week. Amazing stuff. He said, first of all, I will not be dominated or, or be brought under the authority of anything. And then he follows up with this. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You are not your own. Which that's like a four-letter word in our space and time in the world. Because everything that you will hear outside is, is this preaching that you are your own person. That nobody can tell you what to do. That anybody who has authority over you, that's bad news. But Paul says, no, you are not your own. For you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Questions that come to my mind is who really owns me and who really owns my spouse? Who paid the price? Not my spouse. And not me. Jesus owns the husband and the wife. Matthew 20 is if we need more. Matthew 20, verses 25 through 28. But Jesus called them uh, to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, authority and power, right? And their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to serve, but to, to, not, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. How should the Christian steward the authority that you're given? Under the umbrella of, of the authority of Jesus Christ, what is a Christian to do with your authority? How are you supposed to take very good care in exercising the authority that you have? Not by lording it over those whom you have authority over, of course, but by serving, by laying your own life down. Uh, last but not least, uh, in Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to who? To Jesus, to me. So if all authority has been given in heaven and on earth to Jesus, then who has ultimate authority? Who has ultimate authority over marriage? Who has ultimate authority over singles? Who has ultimate authority over my body is Christ. So if my spouse has authority over my body, then it's only within the boundaries of it's within the knowledge that that authority has been granted, been bestowed from one who has greater authority over them. If you have an authority problem, then you have a problem with Jesus. This is where I think the gospel will always, always, always continue to be offensive in a place like where we live. There's many blessings of living in the United States of America. One of the things that we have to unwind a little bit is we don't like power. We don't trust people who have power. We arrange our government so one person doesn't have power for too long. Everything about us is distrusting over authority. But Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Second thing I would say about marriage and sex tonight is while all people live under the authority of Christ, a husband or wife is called to give their spouse sole authority over their own body. Here's the thing. You only give authority to two things, somebody you trust or somebody who's defeated you. 
You give authority to somebody you trust willingly or you submit authority because you've been conquered in some way. And I don't think the second one is love that we're called to embody. Dominating love that takes. Dominating love that puts people in a lower place. That controls. That seeks their own. So that leaves us with you only give authority to those you trust. Uh, Sarah and I, uh, my wife, uh, in a lot of ways, I mean, so a lot of you guys have heard my story before. Uh, You know, single, married, single again, married, hopefully the last time now. Um, Sarah's story is very similar. So both of us, as we come together to, to do this thing that God has, has, has enabled us to do, what we have all these choices. I can't speak for Sarah. That's never a great, um, I would always advise you against speaking for your spouse unless they like write down what you should say. So I'll just speak for myself. Um, I have to unlearn the past in order to learn what God has for me, in order to learn how to take care of what he's given now. How do you learn how to trust each other? Uh, in, a, in a moment of vulnerability, so Monday night we're driving in and uh, we're pulling up to the parking lot and we, we don't like outwardly fight too much. I don't know what's reasonable. Whatever I assume you guys fight, I'm assuming we're kind of like in the same boat with you, I hope, you know. Um, we're pulling up to the parking spot and there's tears coming down and there's still statements being made about, about how mad I am or how mad th- th- this, like we weren't even close to that turning point where it begins to reconcile. And this is pulling up to a covenant members meeting <laughs> at the church. And then of course there's that level. I mean, anybody ever dealt with that? You're, you're coming here. You're, I mean, we're gonna come be with the church. And then one question, one statement derails you. At the core of it, and the two of us have to always wrestle with this on some level, do I trust them? Do I trust who they are? Do I trust who they are alongside me? Do I trust them as we, as we work and live this journey together? Hmm. Pray for me. <laughs> oh, please. Um, let me say this. Trusting, trusting somebody to get results, to get what you want in the end, I don't think that's trust. I think that's control. I think that's manipulation. If God has given me a gift, a gift of a spouse who is fearfully and wonderfully made, created in his image, he's got plans for her, he's got purposes for her life, then for me to trust, um, to be trustworthy in our marriage means for me to submit my plans for her, to submit my plans for our family, to believe that, man, um, Think about it this way. What does it mean for you to entrust yourself to your spouse and to entrust this calling of marriage up to the Lord, to give him the results, to say, God, I'm, I'm just gonna, I'm, I'm going to trust you with my spouse. And only then can I begin to trust them. Can we learn how to work this out? Because this is only a reflection of who you are. Trust, trust, trust. Paul continues on in verse five. He says, do not deprive one another uh, literally, do not defraud one another, right? Don't, don't uh, steal from one another. Don't have this, um, um, 
don't have this thing showing. And then, and you know, like, you remember in Charlie Brown? This just came to me. This is, this is awesome, I hope. Remember in Charlie Brown <coughs> when, uh, when Lucy would have the football on the ground? And, of course, every single time, Charlie would, would, like, get his, like, feet shuffle Charlie Brown dance thing. Then he would run up, and he would, like, do his thing. And then he would just miss it because she would pull it back, and he would fall on his back every single time. That's defrauding. That's, um, that's depriving one another. That's this idea of, of withholding something that, that you said you would, something that was the expectation. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement and a mutual thing for a limited time. Praise God that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So there seems to be this reality that Paul is saying you may decide at times. You may decide that there is something so pertinent, so important that you need to embody a mentality of fasting in your sex life. I'm going to confess, I've never felt this desire whatsoever, (laughs) but it may come someday. Um, By agreement for a limited time. Uh, So not, not not just that one lords it over the other, Right, like the Gentiles. Not, not, not just that one calls the shots, not just that one has a say and the other doesn't. Mutuality, communication, um, by agreement for a limited time, for a limited season, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer because what's waiting around the corner so that Satan may not tempt you. The enemy, the adversary, the devil. I did a word study. I get really geeky about this kind of stuff. I, I did a word study but all the times that Paul, in just Paul's letters, that he mentions the name Satan in any form. And he does it ten times in his letters. And half the times it's said in just First and Second Corinthians. Which tells me just right there, plus the fact that other letters are in the same context, that at least, at least the majority of the time that the enemy works, it's within the reality of interpersonal conflict and separation. Now, I know that Jesus was brought by himself out into the wilderness to be tempted in Matthew 4. I get it. But the enemy works so much by trying to get between two people. Um, you know, what, what the Lord has brought together, let no man put asunder kind of thing. He tries to get into where he does not belong. Tries to separate. Tries to isolate. Tries to divide. The very first sin happened within the context of, you know, it was not good for the man to be alone Yet you fast forward the story and the man is off doing his thing and she's doing her thing. It's within that context that the enemy, that the sneaky serpent uh, crafts his way into the story. And then he begins to create these lies. Did God really say? It's a matter of trust. It's absolutely a matter of trust. So he says, you know, Satan uh, may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now as a concession, not a command, I, I say this. Commentators struggle on whether uh, the, the concession is something that was said before this verse or something afterwards. A majority of them seem to think that he's talking about this scenario that he's talking about in verse 5. So he's saying, it's, I'm not commanding you that everybody has to do this. But if there's opportunity and you decide on this, then you can decide to, um, to go on a break. Not like, you know, the break thing has got the friends connotation. Like, we were on a break. It's not, it's not that. Like, you can decide to... Like, you can decide to lay off this for a little bit for the sole purpose of devoting yourself to prayer. Uh, Amazing stuff. Um, Third thing that I would say about marriage and sex. 
married couples are to mutually discern their sex life. So it's by agreement, which implies communication. Uh, I tried, I tried um, earlier to do a search to try to get some grounded percentage on how often do married couples talk about sex. And I, I mean, I searched everywhere I could find, Glamour Magazine website, Cosmopolitan. <laughs> I didn't even know Woman's World had a website, but I was on it. I just thought they had grocery, grocery store magazines that you just get by the checkout counter. I mean, I, I searched everywhere to try to get some, give me some definitive study or something that says how much people talk about sex, at least on a popular level, I couldn't find it. Which tells me that the number's probably so huge that you shouldn't even bother studying. Just, just say this, most people do not talk about their sex life with their spouse. You may talk about your sex life with your buddies, or lack thereof, or complain, or brag, especially in times when you shouldn't even have a right to brag about a sex life. Um, in the locker room, say, things like that. Uh, couples need to mutually discern their sex life. Uh, later, soon, uh, a little further down the road in 1 Corinthians, Paul's going to make a statement where he says, if one member suffers, all suffer. If one member rejoices, all rejoice. I think there's a mentality of unity that comes in where um, if one of us is weak, then both of us are weak. If one of us is struggling in this, then both of us are struggling in this. The problem isn't just the other person. But we have to talk about these things. I would say this, personal opinion, just throwing this out, it would be so much easier if we never spoke. It would be easier just to have a sex life if we never talked. I mean, amen? Anybody get that? If there was just like a, like a IQ or like um, Takanos, like you have the, uh, uh, that red and green stick thing, you just come home, it would be, it would be easier. It would be easier. Uh, You'd be amazed at how much stuff is actually just coming to me without thinking about it. And I don't know if that's... I don't know if that's a good thing or not. I'm just... We can edit the the podcast afterwards. Um, But here's here's the reality. Um, Words... Uh, some of the most powerful things that we possess, words can get in the way. Words can get in the way. Uh, Words matter. We say this all the time to our three-year-old, use your words. Sometimes I act like that three-year-old when I don't get my way. Use use your words. What are you trying to say? Um, We have to communicate together. I can promise you this, other people will be willing to communicate with them. You may not think about it now, but an old flame on Facebook, a coworker that is is just so nice, um, a virtual a virtual experience, they think that that's willing to talk to them. Other people, other input is willing to come from other places. But you're the one, you're the one who has authority. You're the one who has a trust. You're the only other person that sits in this sole role of a partnership with your spouse. We have to learn how to communicate uh, with each other. Have to learn. In verse 7, Paul says this, I wish that all were as I myself am. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and to the widows, I say that it is good for them 
to remain single as I am. Okay, pause. Is anybody a little mad at Paul right now? Sarah was reading this a few months back, and I remember the conversation came up. Yeah, I got kind of a beef with Paul right now. <laughs> What's he saying about marriage? I mean, we're the church. We're, we're the ones who've been picketing on, you know, the Supreme Court steps that marriage would stay in one way, that th- this has got to be our concern, right? The biblical view of marriage, it's got to take precedent. And Paul makes this statement, I wish that all were as I myself am. So here's Paul. Like all of us, is born into a life of singleness. I don't know any babies who were born uh, in the marriage covenant yet, okay? So you have Paul born into singleness. It's safe to say this. I don't have any biblical basis. This is completely my opinion. And just like a number of other things, I could be completely wrong about this. But because Paul is a Pharisee of the Pharisees, a member of the Sanhedrin, he identifies himself as that in the book of Acts, uh, of the school under Gamaliel that, that he sat under, all of these things independently would say that you should be married. Now you begin to put these three different identities on top of Paul and you lay it on top of each other and then you think about this. For Paul to not have been married at some point would be so improbable. Born into singleness. Likely, at least, that he was probably married at some point. And now he says, I wish that all were as I myself am. And he's talking about singleness. So, you know, what's the reality of of what could have happened? Probably two things. Uh, Paul, in in, um, one way or another, maybe he became a widower. Maybe he had a wife, maybe she passed away. Also, very likely, if Paul is a baller Pharisee, he probably has a baller Pharisee wife, right? Uh, And probably somebody who wasn't too happy about this whole thing that just happened to him on Damascus Road. Do you begin to get a sense for what the man may have walked through? How this call of Christ, this costly call, has, has maybe even cost him everything. He's in this moment. Even with the likely things that could have happened, he says, I wish that uh, all were as I myself am. He says, but each has his own, what does he call this? Gift from God. Uh, Let me clue you in on this. Whenever Paul uses the word gift in any context, it's always a present reality that has implications for the future full coming of the kingdom of God. So when we talk about things like spiritual gifts, which Paul is really big on. He's going to be really big on them later in this letter. It's a present manifestation of something that testifies to something greater that isn't just about telling the story of today. It's not just, it's not, it's not just miraculous things for today's sake. It's always leaning into the future. And you have to remember who Paul is. When did he first encounter Jesus? On the Damascus Road, Jesus wasn't, uh, Jesus wasn't laying in the grave. Jesus was risen. Which means that Paul met the Jesus that is experiencing the future reality of what is to come that, that changed him for forever. It's not just that the resurrection of Jesus is totally isolated from us. Mark went into this last week. The bodily resurrection of Christ has implications for us and severely, severely affects the hope that we have in Christ. Severely adds to what we anticipate. 
So Paul, in his first encounter with Christ, is, is, is you could say, the Jesus from the future in the present, so to speak. Uh, one of the amazing questions that John the Baptist asks Jesus in the Gospels, he sends his disciples, and he sends this question. He said, are you the one that is to come? Are you, right now, the one that is to come? And Jesus' answer was he said things like, tell John, the deaf hear, the lame walk, the blind see. And it's not just about today. This is only something that can come from the future of God's total reign over all things. Each has his own gift from God. One of one kind, one of another. Which means that marriage is a gift. And it means that he would, he would desire in his heart of hearts that all could have this gift of singleness. We're really good about identifying marriage as the gift. The church has not been very good in general about identifying singleness as a God-given gift. If it's a gift, it's implying there's a giver, right? It's coming from somewhere. Who's it coming from? God himself. That means that marriage is a good gift given from God, and singleness by itself is a good gift given from God, not just necessarily a means to a better end. He ends off in verse 9, he says, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they, then they should marry, for it's better to, to marry than to burn with passion. Literally, it's better to marry than to burn. You ever held something that's burning? It's not fun to live like that for like two seconds, let alone your whole life. So, how is singleness a gift? How, is sing, how does singleness give, how does it give Paul such a heart to desire people to want to exist in this present single life in such a way? It, it's got to give you a window into something. It's got it's to lead somewhere. I'll say this in Mark 12. In Mark 12, verses 18 through 27, Jesus himself says this. And the Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection, and they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise, and the seven left no Offspring, last of all, the woman also died. I feel really sorry for this woman. Hmm. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. They think they're really smart, right? Jesus said to them, it is not the reason you are wrong. Uh, is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. That's it. You, you don't even know the scriptures, nor the power of God behind them. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. So what does this mean? It means that you and I, married people in this room, the future reality of what we long to see realized in the last stage of all things. After Christ has come back, destroyed every dominion against God, uh, sin vanquished, heaven and earth come together. Revelation says that uh, death and sadness are former things. They've passed away. They're no more. 
that the dwelling place of God is with men. What's the future reality? Well, you and I, between other human beings, will not experience marriage together in that way. And that can seem like a letdown. Uh, I don't know. I mean, to be completely honest, I have no. I, I, I don't know about questions about will I recognize my spouse in heaven or not. I, I don't know. Um, I don't see any reason why not. It's all speculation. But I can make this statement. Um, I think that the, if, if there was such a thing as the worst love between brothers and sisters in Christ, after the consummation of all things, that love will be better than the best love experienced by any marriage on earth currently. Uh, we'll be like angels. This covenant of marriage itself will not be experienced in the same way that we experience it um, now. Now, the ultimate question is, is marriage even relevant then? Yes, it is. Revelation 19. In Revelation 19, among many other wonderful places, it says this, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Of course, that's what the Holy Spirit's been doing this whole time. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Of course there's marriage in heaven. But it's the marriage between Jesus and his church. Jesus, the groom, and the church, the bride, the body of Christ. Absolutely unbelievable. Which brings us back to hope. Do you believe today's gifts prepare you for what is to come? The gift of singleness, if given by God, which if you have it, you have it. <laughs> All right? Yeah, yeah, there you go. If you're single, you... Um, Let's just say this. So if it's not the Lord's will that you would have sex, what do you have left? Is there any hope? If marriage is only sex, then you have no hope. But what does sex lead to? Intimacy. Intimacy is at the heart of the whole thing. In singleness, you will be given unique, special, realistic, honest understanding that will cause you to long for the coming of the kingdom of God when that singleness is realized in the ultimate marriage that you will experience with Christ corporately with the body of Christ. Now on the other sense, marriage itself, not to be, not to be outdone, not to be pushed aside like a lesser uh, calling. Paul will go on to say in this chapter that if some feel called to marry, if those feel called to marry who, offer, who have opportunity, then they're free to marry. You have freedom. Uh, Jesus says back in Matthew 19 on a hard, hard teaching about divorce, his disciples say, well, then why would anybody get married? Um, and then Jesus says, this is a tough teaching, but it's only for those to whom it's given, which means that the calling of singleness likely is, is a minority. It doesn't have to be. But this gift of marriage is a very different way in which you get a foretaste of what is to come, a broken foretaste in so many ways. But you experience now something that gives you greater anticipation that, that you can pray along with John at the end of Revelation and say, come Lord Jesus. Now in marriage and in singleness, you will say, come Lord Jesus, 
on your best days for different reasons than on your worst days, you will say, come Lord Jesus, right? Pulling up in the parking lot Monday night, Sarah, Sarah in her heart is probably saying, come Lord Jesus. Get, get this man away from me, right? But on your best day, you, you will experience something that, it's like getting a taste of something that is uh, to come. John Piper in his book, This Momentary Marriage, says that any marriage in this life is, um, is a temporary reflection of what is to come. It's like, it's like the, the, the marriage that we long for in the future of all things is like a song that's played in a higher key. It's, it's something that we, we kind of got glimpses of, but we could have never experienced how good this would be. This is the hope that we have in marriage. Not, not that you and I can be good, awesome husbands and wives. Not that if you're single in the room, not that you can measure up to some standard for singleness, but it, it, it's realizing this point number four, that both marriage and singleness are good gifts given from God to be affirmed and celebrated and shared within the body of Christ, anticipating the last great marriage. So they're good gifts, but it's never about it's never about being fully realized like having arrived today. It's always a foretaste. It's always a taste of what is to come, both in singleness, both in a marriage. So what if you're called to be single? What if you're in this room right now and you've wrestled with these questions at, at, at times? Am I called to be single for my entire life? Do I have a lifelong calling of singleship? I don't even know if singleship is a word, but it sounds pretty good. Do I have a lifelong calling to remain single? Uh, I'm going to defer back to an amazing, amazing teaching that, that Mark has given over and over again, that we have to be very careful to not forego the general call of God for the specific. We want to know, God, what do you have for me for the rest of my life? What do you got for me for the next 40 years while missing today, while missing living faithfully in what he's called us uh, to live in today? Uh, I asked a, a sister in Christ in the church, a single uh, you probably look and wonder, and, and Russell, she, you know, she's not 22. And I just asked her, I said, how do, you, how do you know that you have this calling of singleness? I asked her this like four months ago. And as she thought, and she doesn't talk much. And so I was really kind of waiting on, on bated you know, breath, like, what, how is she, what is she going to say? And I said, you know, how do you know you're called to be single? And she said, uh, I'm single. I'm single uh, because I still believe that the Lord who has authority over, over what volcanoes do in Ecuador has every authority over the steps and what he provides in my life now. If this is my lot right now, then I'm called to live single. The reality is maybe that could change tomorrow, but maybe not. Again, the nature of trust isn't saying I'm going to trust you to get my preconceived notions of what I need in the end. I'm going to trust you to get this out of you. No, um, I'm going to trust you, Lord. And if you, if you give this, then you give it. If you don't give it, then please sustain me. God, please sustain me. Um, here's the question. Are you called to be celibate? All of a sudden, the, the, the conversations about the priests come in. My buddy who I used to raz, you know, I probably shouldn't have teased him too much about being celibate, but um, are you called to be celibate? How do you know if you're called to be celibate? Well, uh, I could say this. Um, when the avenues through which you could explore your sexuality are not permissible and according to scripture. That there are no faithful avenues open for you. 
Uh, now, the, the friend I had lunch with on Friday this past week, uh, the one who put all the awesome sauces together and the one, the one who said, do you trust me? Uh, my friend is from seminary. Uh, we went through seminary together. Good friend. He's gay. He's attracted to men. I asked him permission, if he would give me permission to tell parts of his story. And he said, absolutely. He's been attracted to men his whole life. Now, when we think of homosexuality, we think of, of one camp that would say, uh, the Bible and the church have to catch up with where culture clearly has arrived. So we need to enable everything. Marriage, traditional, out the window. Let them, we just need to enable, we need to vote it into law. Same-sex marriage, that's the way it needs to go. Why withhold it so cruel? And there's the other side, which would say, uh, no, 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 that's evil. That's so unbelievably evil. Um, so uh, we're going to be delivered from it. We're going to pray for deliverance. Now, I think those two sides get a lot of airtime. They get a lot of airtime on TV, on the radio. Uh, I suspect that most people, this is only speculation, that most people, in my opinion, probably sit where my friend sits. I absolutely believe that the Bible says that marriage is defined as being between one man and one woman in a one flesh relationship. At the same time, as much as I've prayed my whole life, I'm yet to be delivered from this. I'm yet to be rid of this sin. So this is my friend. And as we wrestled through these things, uh, I, I just, you know, I said, tell me about singleness, man. Because it's really amazing. The church, um, as much as we are so light years ahead of the culture in terms of uh, looking at sex, uh, sexual sin in general, the church, uh, for some reason, has still not woken up from when the AIDS crisis began. The AIDS crisis has been going on for almost 35 years, and we still don't have any clear answers in the ways that we treat people. We're not prepared. We don't know how to welcome people in. And you may say, well, if I, if I, see, some, if I, two, if I see two guys walking in holding hands like that, man, I'll know what to do. I, I doubt you will ever see two men hold hands walking into this church right now. It's amazing how the conversation about homosexuality is very relevant to singleness. Because for one reason or another, the Lord has given you this calling, this vocation, this role of singleness. Now, I, I personally believe that my friend, uh, as much as he continues to live a celibate life, he's not in sin. And let this mess with your mind. If Jesus said that nobody's going to marry or be given a marriage in the resurrection, then that means that nobody will die anymore as well, because death shall be no more, which means that there's probably no more need to reproduce which means that at the end of the day, whatever sexual orientation we may have come through in this life, we will be together in one marriage that will be sanctioned with Jesus. There's hope for people who struggle with same-sex attraction. Now, I also will advise you to say, don't take one person's story and multiply it onto everybody you know who's gay, okay? Um, but if we want to affirm the gift of singleness within the church, then we have to do things. We have to, we have to make sure our marriages cannot, um, cannot presume to have already arrived and to carry ourselves like that, to act like we have it all figured out. Because both sides in singleness and marriage are looking at the other from a grass is greener standpoint. Oh, that's awesome. They have that all figured out. Oh, that singleness thing, that's awesome. It's just like friends. They just go to the coffee shop and talk all the time. It's great, you know. You know they're never lonely. Uh, they, they know what home feels like. No, we have to be prepared to, uh, to have marriages exist for the sake of serving 
and welcoming others, and we have to value friendship. Here's the reality. If my wife is my best friend, that's great. But if she's the only friend that I confide in and she technically has to have sex with me, that's going to get really awkward sometimes, okay? So praise God that there are other friends, God-given friends, spiritual friendships that we can have with one another so that our spouse doesn't have to be the only outlet. And so that those who uh, will not be given the gift of marriage, at least in this present time, that they can experience intimacy and friendship and love and joy in a way that that would honor the Lord. Marriages have to be careful. We have to value friendship. We have to help create a home environment. Not just married people inviting singles into their home, which is amazing that we have so many that are living with families in this church. But, but single folks, man, you've got you to gotta think about what it means. Um, it doesn't say anywhere in the Bible that you need to isolate yourself in a studio apartment for the rest of your life. Maybe it means that you need to save up more money to buy a house that you can entertain people in. Or maybe it, needs to, maybe it means that you need to be willing to live in a house with roommates for the rest of your life and for that to be okay. Like three's company, but only all the same sex, right? Like, like this, these can be good God-given things. Uh, we have to work this out in community together because if you come tonight wanting to figure out how do I, like I thought I was gonna get three points that would confirm that I'm gonna be like this for the rest of my life or that would tell me, should I marry this person or not? This is why we have biblical community because we can work this out. And again, getting to the main point of all of it in intimacy, we can be known together in this. We can celebrate together in this. We're all struggling with the present realities of our gifts in one way or another. And some of us right now are experiencing our best days. Some of us are experiencing our worst days. Um, We're doing a little better since Monday night, you know. Uh, Me and my wife, I can't speak for you and yours. Um, Here's the hope I think that... um, the reality is some of you are in marriages that are falling apart right now. Some of you are drowning in loneliness and isolation and singleness. Um, but somehow this gift, this role that God has given you, is not about you. It's meant to be something that would orient you to the future, to what he is accomplishing in Jesus Christ. So let me share this with you. Second Corinthians 4. This light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Do you trust him? Do you trust him where you're at? Do you trust him with the spouse God has given you? Do you trust God with the, the, with the life of singleness, the calling he's given you? Do you trust him to exist vulnerably within the body of Christ with others who aren't in your same phase of life? I want to leave you with this, um, this prayer. God, in this moment, Help me to trust you with my gift. Give me hope for what is to come. God, prevent me from basing all my my faith on what you're going to provide tomorrow. God, in this moment, in this day, in this hour, right now, help me to trust you with what you've given. Help me to not make a God or an idol out of what you've given, but may it just be a stepping stone that prepares me for what you have laying ahead. If today, uh, If today is all we have, then we're hopeless. Uh, if we await something amazing, friends, amazing that awaits us in Christ, this grand, amazing marriage, then we have hope for today. Hope that we can receive what he's given and trust him in that. Would you pray with me? God, I, um, I pray for those who are broken. God, I pray for the ones who are wrestling, who've 
fought against you. I pray for the ones who've lost faith in, in you as a giver. God, I pray for the ones who've, um, who've thought that they've performed so well their whole life, but it's never, ever been for you. It's always been for them. God, I pray that you would shepherd us, that you would cause us to receive the gifts you've given in marriage and in singleness. God, help those who are celibate to endure. Help those who need to receive forgiveness to receive it. God, I pray that you would strengthen marriages in this community, that you would help us to see that sex is not a bad thing, but an amazing thing. But all of this, Father, is pointing to what you're doing. That's the reason for our hope. Jesus Christ, make us ready for that marriage.